Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. I'm James Dorsey, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Michael Quentin Morton about his new book, Masters of the Pearl, A History of Qatar. Michael Quentin Morton, welcome to the show. Thank you, James. Thank you for inviting me. Michael, uh, Quentin, sorry, <laughs> Quentin, uh, I wonder if you could begin the, the uh, this interview by telling us a little bit about your intellectual history, how you got to writing this book and why you wrote it. Well, I guess it all started um, through the influence of my father, who was an exploration geologist in the Middle East from 1945 to 71, and then became a consultant for various oil companies. And uh, it was through his stories that I first took an interest in the region. And uh, after he passed away in 2003, I wrote his biography, In the Heart of the Desert, which uh, detailed his travels around the region. After that, I, for the next probably 10 years, I wrote uh, books and articles about the history of oil in the region. But come about um, 2015, I felt uh, I'd exhausted the history of oil and I wanted to branch out. So uh, I um, started looking at the history of the Gulf in particular and uh, wrote a book entitled Keepers of the Golden Shore, which was a history of the United Arab Emirates. Having completed that book, I looked around and, of course, Gatta was in the news at the time with the blockade and everything else. And I lived there in the early 50s or to late 50s. And I remembered what it was like before it had been developed. And that, to me, seemed to be fertile ground for my next book, which um, I started writing probably in three years ago. And you went back in early 2018, if I'm not incorrect, for the first time since you had left as, uh, Qatar as a child. That must have been, in terms of your memories, quite a culture shock. It, it was. I had already been back to the UAE and Oman uh, before then, but of course, Gatta I hadn't, and um, visiting Gatta and touring the district, uh, the area uh, came, you know, found a, a, a land of great contrast, certainly to the days I remember it from. And, and really, there's no comparison between uh, Gatta in those days, in the early days of the 50s, and uh, Gatta today. Um, it's been remarkable what's happened. Uh, but of course, trying to link the two, the past and the present, is what also attracted me to writing a history of the country and to try and trace through themes of the past into themes of the present. If, if you look at if, or go beyond what the obviously obvious differences are, the skyscrapers, the modern city, the heavy traffic, uh, a very different demography uh, from the times of your memory, uh, but if you look beyond that, what in your mind has most fundamentally changed in Qatar? Well, yes, so there's obviously the material side of things, um, the uh, affluence, and uh, of course the huge uh, influx of foreign workers, which is necessary to maintain the pace of change, the building construction and the like. Um, so those are big changes. Uh, and, you know, the... Qataris themselves have become 
a, a, what you might say a small minority in their own country and um, that obviously is a big change from the past when uh, they dominate, dominated of course uh, looking back um, part of the population was made up of slaves and uh, of course Gatto made that uh, transformation um, and slavery was abolished but you know the big changes I suppose from a traditional society to a modern society uh, tribal ways uh, and tribal links still exist of course uh, but of course were more prominent and noticeable perhaps in the old days than they are today uh in your book, you quote a popular saying that Qatar is the land God forgot. Uh, is, would you still say that, given that today Qatar seems a land that is everything but forgotten? Yes, I don't think you could say that today. Uh, bearing in mind they've been extremely fortunate um, with their oil discoveries and also with the Northfield natural gas. And, and so it's an extremely rich and very small country. Uh, so, no, you couldn't say that, uh, I don't think, today. But certainly in the old days, it was a fairly desolate place, undeveloped. And, uh, you know, Doha, of course, was um, a thriving town, as was Bidda next door to it, uh, and also the poor pearl fisheries. But the interior uh, was uh, remote and uninhabited, except for, you know, passing Bedouins and the like. Uh, so it was really the coastal towns that had, the, the um, wealth from the pearls, uh, but inland it was a fairly desolate place. Indeed, you um, describe in great detail the importance of pearls in the formation of Qatar and the quest for wealth as an instrument to wield power, which was true in the day of the pearls, but also seems to be true today in, the, in, the, uh, in a world of oil and gas. Yes, um, certainly... Pearls uh, gave wealth and wealth gave power. Um, pearls almost moulded uh, Qatari society around it. Um, the English traveller Palgrave visited in 1863. And, of course, there's the famous comment of the ruler uh, uh, at the time, Mohammed Al Thani, who said that we are all slaves to one master, the pearl. And that was perfectly right. Was pearls brought their own problems uh, to the leading families. You couldn't really talk about rulers of the whole country at that time, more leading sheikhs of particular tribes. There, was, there were arguments over the division of money, uh, division of the wealth from the pearls. And of course, as families got bigger, those arguments got more difficult. And with that came also uh, struggles over succession, who was going to succeed as leader of the tribe etc so internally there were issues and looking externally a lot of the foreign uh, engagements that Gatta went through um, were determined by their interest in pearls one of the key issues of Gatari history is the uh, story of Zubara which is on the northwestern coast and it's here really that the uh, enmity, animosity perhaps between the Al Khalifa who ruled Bahrain and the Al Thani who currently rule Gatta um, arose. Um, it arose really before um, the Al Thani came to prominence. The Al Khalifa uh, were prominent in Zubara and then conquered Bahrain and moved there in the 17th, sorry, the 19th century. 
then as a result of that, um, they still held a claim to Zubara, which as time went on and the Althanis emerged, uh, the Althanis uh, contested that claim and it was a bone of contention between them and it could be argued is still a bone of contention between them today. Uh, looking uh, to the other side of Gata, towards Abu Dhabi, which is, of course, part of the UAE, there were uh, there was competition over pearls and territory. And um, a lot of the uh, conflicts with Abu Dhabi um, around about the 1880s can be explained by their rivalry over pearls and, and uh, an interest and ambition from both leading sheikhs to uh, take possession of the polling grounds uh, that stretched really from Gata down to Ras Um And then, of course, there's uh, the old uh, question of Saudi Arabia and Gata's relations with Saudi Arabia, which wasn't necessarily determined by pearls, but was more determined by dynastic and tribal considerations. And the fact that Saudi Arabia, obviously at that time, um, known as Nej, was a central Arabian sheikdom, uh, emirate, and um, had ambitions towards Gata. And um, from from there, we see that, uh, again, there were rivalries and, and um, uh, struggles that grew up between Gata and uh, Saudi Arabia over, really over territory. territory. Uh, slavery played a role in all of this, and obviously Qatar, like Saudi Arabia, was one of the last to, to abolish the vestige of slavery. Yet, it's almost symptom, uh, symbol, uh, symbiotic, if you wish, of the differences between Qatar and uh, other Gulf states. Qatar today is the only Gulf state with a museum dedicated to the history of slavery in the region. It is, and uh, I visited the museum when I was there in 2018. Uh, in a way, it's uh, uh, surprising because I think there is still a taboo about slavery in the Gulf, and um, they don't like talking about it very much in the past, but it is obviously a fact of history. And um, so Gattar has um, created this museum to slavery, the Bin Jelmud House, um, which in its way, is uh, very informative and educational and also covers modern slavery, uh, which you can see might be a, a problem as far as the Qataris are concerned with the current kafala system. You could say um, this is also... The kafala part... system being the uh, sponsorship of employees by employers, which really in some ways makes the... Uh... Makes the or made the employee dependent on the employer. Correct. That's right. So, um, as far as um, the slavery museum goes, it's um, a useful and interesting addition to the already um, number of museums in in the in Doha, um, and um, you know, in that sense, it's um, very helpful. Um, but looking. Towards the bigger picture, you can also see that this is um, part of um, Gatta's uh, power drive, if you like, um, to uh, influence and um, impress um, the outside world and uh, also to accept uh, part of its history. It's 
it's also in the sense, I mean, Qatar, and that's part of, in a sense, one of the dichotomies of Qatar. It, uh, it differed with other Gulf states in its support for the popular Arab revolts in 2011. It uh, publicly promotes concepts of human rights, of democracy, uh, of freedom of the press, even if those are not all really implemented at home. But it seemed to me that the uh, the opening of the Museum uh, of Slavery in uh, or the history of slavery in Qatar was part of that dichotomy. With other words, uh, wanting to be at the cutting edge and being seen as progressive, even, uh, and in some ways maybe the the museum is one of the few instances where uh, where they walk the where they walk the talk. With other words, they've actually done something at home. Yes, I think that's right. Uh, there is this dichotomy, and uh, you see it in. Uh, freedom of the press, Al Jazeera reporting of events abroad, and yet at home there's this concept of self censorship, which is you know censorship um, in everything. Um, so there is that um, dichotomy. Um, again, human rights, um, even support for democracy. Although there has been some support for democracy from the. Uh, Amir Hamad, when he was um, ruling, um, that's been limited and um, not as as as, um, uh, as extensive as as one might hope it, it would be. I mean, there is an argument to say that perhaps democracy isn't um, the way forward for these countries at the present time. But um, that's a, another de- debate to be had. The, the fact is that there is this dichotomy um, between what's happening inside Gata and what's happening on the outside and particularly the way it uh, has pursued certain objectives through its foreign policy. Indeed. Um, we perceive Gulf states in general, certainly the smaller Gulf states, as recently established entities with little history. In the case of Gata, your book argues very uh, convincingly the opposite and suggests Gata's history explains what it represents today and many of the issues that have garnered it controversy and headlines, including the winning of the 2022 World Cup hosting rights and the now more than three-year-old Saudi United Arab Emirates-led diplomatic and economic boycott. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah, so uh, Gata's history, um, you can trace it back to the uh, 18th century when um, tribes were coming out of Central Arabia and settling along the um, Gatari coast. And as I mentioned before, the Al Khalifa, um, who eventually went to Bahrain, um, in fact, it was 1783 that they conquered Bahrain. Um, the Al Khalifa settled in um, Zubara. Uh, the Al Thani um, didn't emerge really till about the 1850s uh, when the leader of the family, uh, Muhammad Al Thani, moved to Doha from Furarat. Um, again, attracted um, by pearls and starting, or in fact, continuing a family business in the, in the pearl trade. So you've got that background of um, dynastic. Um, conflicts going back way back into the past. Uh, 
with Abu Dhabi, you've got a conflict over Khor Al Udaid, which today, of course, is where the American airbase is situated. But in those days, was a, an inlet um, which was frequented mainly by pirates hiding from the British, and the British boats um, couldn't get into the inlet, and and therefore the pirates were safe there. But that became uh, a spot where um, both Abu Dhabi and um, the Qataris under Sheikh Jashim, uh, that's where they, they a place that they vied over. Um, you then get the foreign interventions, and, and in those events you can almost see um, a, a similarity with the current day in the way that Qatar has um, sought the support of um, larger foreign countries. For example, I'm thinking of Turkey and, and the way that that's developed in modern times. In the past, of course, the Ottomans arrived in Doha in 1871. Uh, the flags were first flown then. And they continued uh, until uh, 1916, to the middle of the uh, World War, First World War. And um, the, the, the garrison there, um, although uh, established and also um, confirmed a, an Ottoman present, was more of a, a, a token uh, gesture more than anything else. Uh, it had very little influence over the interior. And uh, in fact, uh, the Ottoman troops were uh, prohibited from marching more than four hours inland, which rather limited them anyway. So they had a rather patchy history um, staying in Doha for the time that they did. In fact, they were defeated in 1893 by uh, an army led by the Qatari sheikh, Sheikh Jassim, the, the famous Battle of Wajba. Uh, and then, of course, the British um, come along. Uh, they'd always been there. Uh, the British saw the Ottomans, first of all, perhaps, um, as a helpful influence in the Gulf in suppressing piracy, which, of course, the British were keen to uh, put down. Uh, but then over time came to see the Ottomans more as a threat to their interests in the Gulf, uh, which uh, eventually uh, that question was uh, resolved uh, in 1913 um, when the Ottomans made a treaty with the, with the British and um, eventually uh, retired from the fort at Doha. So you've got those uh, foreign interventions, which obviously had an impact. And then, of course, the British then take over, in effect, as the uh, prominent foreign power, uh, leading up to the T uh, Treaty of Protection in 1935, which was all around the question of oil. And by now, the British had realised they had a more pressing interest in Gata, uh, was as, whereas before it was more of a marginal interest, but now they had a pressing interest in Gata with the promise of oil being discovered, which of course it was at Dukan in 1940. So you've got that theme, uh, which also reflects uh, the traditional Arab uh, strategy of seeking the, uh, the support of a more powerful neighbour. And you can see how that fits well with the um, current arrangements. There's also another theme that works its way through is the question of succession. Again, I've um, referred to that briefly, but um, it really became a big problem uh, from 1949 onwards when it seemed to dominate uh, the affairs of the ruling family and the politics such as they were 
which existed within the ruling family um, were um, overtaken really by the question of succession. There was um, Ali who took over in 1949, but of course the favourite for succession had been um, the Sheikh's other son, um, Hamad, but unfortunately he died in 1948. Uh, Ali um, then um, indicated he wanted his son Ahmad to um, succeed him which he did in 1960, but there was also in the background Khalifa, who was the son of Hamad, um, he, he was always vying for influence and, and felt also that, uh, in fact, the uh, throne was rightfully his. So you had that going on as well, and eventually Khalifa overthrew Ahmad in 1972. Of course, all this really comes to a head in 1995 when uh, Hamad um, mounted his coup and removed Khalifa, and uh, although um, that then uh, put an end to the family struggle over succession, and um, Hamad uh, made it clear that he wanted Tamim uh, in the 2000s to um, succeed him, which he, of course he did in 2013. Um, that seems to have uh, put paid to the old problem of succession, um, and and um, you know the wranglings within the larger Al Thani family group. You describe how Qatar's ruling family, the Al Thanis, hail from an area north of Riyadh in what is today Saudi Arabia. And another tantalizing fact that you note in the book is that the Al Thanis left Saudi Arabia before Wahhabism, the austere Saudi interpretation of Islam, emerged in what is now the kingdom. Do those facts help explain Gata's complex relationship with the kingdom? Oh yes, I think so. I think that's an important part of it. I mean, they share a common heritage in that sense. And there were times when Gata had moved um, quite close to the Wahhabi interpretation of, of um, Islam, um, certainly during the time of Sheikh Jashim in the late 19th century. Um, Jashim used to uh, affect um, Neji clothes and also um, uh, followed the Wahhabi way. Um, so in that sense, um, Gatta has in the past swayed um, from that version to the more modern version, which is uh, perhaps more liberal and forward-looking, although it has to be said, of course, that um, Saudi Arabia has been relaxing its uh, austere austereness um, in more recent times uh, and so you know perhaps there's a, a greater coming together but certainly in the last couple of decades this has been a, a matter of friction between the two countries the differing views of um, Islam and the way that it's interpreted in both countries. Coming back to the Ottomans for, for a second um, Althani's support for the Ottomans was grounded in seeing them sort of as the least bad of the options, which included the Wahhabis, as well as the dominant Al-Khalifa family in Bahrain and the British. Why did they see the Ottomans that way, and why did the Qataris ultimately become disillusioned with the Ottomans? Well, the Qataris were being um, harassed by the Saudis at the time, because there was an ongoing battle between the two contenders for the Saudi throne, and Saud uh, bin Faisal uh, was uh, regularly raiding Gatta and cutting off the water to Doha and, and uh, taking munitions from the people. 
Uh, so they needed protection. Uh, clearly, uh, it wasn't so long ago um, that um, the Al Khalifa had uh, ruled the whole um, peninsula as such. Uh, and so you can see certainly from the sheikhs in Doha and Wakra and around that area, the pearling sheikhs, if you like, or the, I think I call it in the book, the Doha Confederation, um, clearly the, having the Al inviting the Al Khalifa back in wasn't uh, an acceptable idea um the british that i think you know there was talk perhaps of um the british being the prominent power but it was hoped i think certainly by sheikh jashim um that uh, the uh, ottomans wouldn't really impose a great authority on the country and he would be free to basically carry on his own ways his father, Mohammed, the man that uh, William Palgrave had seen in 1863, he did uh, prefer to uh, have dialogue with the British rather than the Ottomans. Uh, but of course, Jassim um, succeeded uh, in 1878. And um, from there, um, he sort of conducted this two-way policy with the Ottomans. Uh, he would cooperate with them to a certain extent when it, it suited his own objectives. For example, um, Jassim had uh, designs on Bahrain and um, also the Ottomans did. Uh, they wanted to prize Bahrain away from the British who were the protective power there. And, and so um, we have an instant in Zubara in 1895 when Jassim has actually collected a fleet together under the Ottoman flag and is prepared to um, uh, invade Bahrain, uh, at which point the British intervened and uh, sank some of his fleet and captured the other vessels. So there was you know, this aspect with Jassim of really trying to play both sides and um, using the Ottomans where the Ottomans were useful, i.e. for protection against um, outsiders, uh, but also um, trying to exploit them to his own ends. In the end, um, Jashim got um, fed up with the Ottomans uh, because they didn't really provide any stability. Um, they uh, weren't able to um, assist him in his military ventures. Um, they didn't suppress piracy. And they became irksome, uh, Some, according to who was the Ottoman representative of the times, but some could be uh, very intrusive and um, demand to be consulted on everything. And uh, again, I, th I think um, Yassim found that quite irritating. As time went on, um, Yassim took a back seat and his brother Ahmed um, effectively ruled from Doha. And he was more uh, interested in a, having a treaty with the British. The British were in two minds about that. Uh, really reflecting a split between the India office, which wanted to resist Ottoman, uh, the Ottoman influence in Gata, and the foreign office, which really looked at the larger picture, and particularly in Europe, and perhaps making deals with the Ottomans, uh, which could then be used in the Gulf, perhaps as leverage, uh, or, you know, in exchange for, for um, allowing the Ottomans to have some leeway in the Gulf. So there are all those things going on. Um, and finally, I don't think it was any great loss um, to the Qataris, and they didn't feel that way, that um, the Ottomans departed um, during the First World War. You've mentioned Jassim Al-Thani a number of times. He's a legendary figure in 
Gadar mythology and seen as the founder of the nation. He also represented the long-gone history of close ties to the Al Saud uh, family in Saudi Arabia and the Saudi form of Islam, Wahhabism. Tell us more about Jassim. Well, Jassim was a remarkable character in many ways. Um, he was um, he was born in Furarat, we think, um, in the eighteen twenties, and um, grew up with his family there. Um, when his father Muhammad moved to Doha, he made the move with him, and Palgrave met him um, when he visited uh, Muhammad in 1863 and describes this figure dressed in neji clothing uh, in the desert. Um, Jassim had very clear idea of what he wanted and did uh, take issue with his father over a number of uh, a number of matters. Um, but overall that didn't seem to completely ruin his relationship with his father and he seems to have been on generally uh, reasonable terms with his father until his father died in 1878. Um, you can see then uh, Jassim trying to assert himself over several areas. Um, there's Zubara and the whole question of the Al Khalifa in Bahrain, um, Jassim collecting uh, his men and his ships to try and invade Bahrain, um, the uh, conflict with Abu Dhabi. And it's really in the conflict with Abu Dhabi we see another side, perhaps, of Yassim because um, in 1887 his um, favourite son, Ali, was killed um, by um, an Abu Dhabi uh, raiding party uh, which had a quite a profound effect on Yassim um, to the extent that he vowed revenge. And there is this description in the book of um, a massacre in... Um, a massacre in um, the Liwa Oasis, which belonged to Abu Dhabi, um, that um, Yassin's men carried out. So um, in that respect, you know, we see perhaps a, a, a more ruthless side of um, Yassin. Um, of course, he won this famous victory at Wahba, and a lot of that was obviously due to his own um, uh, prominence and, and, and desire to, um, you know, shake off the Ottoman yoke, if you like, um, also owed um, part of his success to the fact that he had uh, Martini Henry rifles. And here we have a whole new dimension opening up because it was uh, through his Kuwaiti contact, um, Yusuf al-Ibrahim, that he was able to secure these rifles, which were being smuggled up and down the Gulf and overland. British were trying to put a stop to it, but inevitably the rifles got through, and, and they were perfect for desert warriors, if you like, um, who could move quickly, shoot from the hip uh, on their horses, and then disappear into the desert again. So that was a huge advantage to him. Uh, the, the, the Kuwaiti dimension adds a, a regional side to Yassim's story because Yassim, through his friendship with uh, Yusuf al-Ibrahim, became quite heavily involved in uh, Kuwaiti politics, uh, particularly when uh, Mubarak took the throne after murdering his two brothers and al-Ibrahim took the side of the uh, murdered brothers' families. So there was immediately there a divide in the ruling family of Kuwait and 
course, because of what Yusuf Ali Ibrahim had done for uh, Yassim and uh, all the help he had provided and their friendship, um, he took Ali Ibrahim's side. And there was the start of an army marching towards Kuwait from Ghatta. Um, it was proposed to link up with the Al-Rashid, uh, a tri tribe from Northern Arabia, and together they were going to march on Kuwait and um, intended to defeat Mubarak, Sheikh Mubarak. Unfortunately, uh, Yassim got to the uh, boundary, or such as it was, let's say the base of the Ghatta Peninsula, uh, and he heard news that um, the sheikh of the Rashid had, in fact, passed away, natural causes. And so his men wouldn't be coming. And at that point, Yassim called it off. Uh, you know, it would have been a remarkable thing had he marched up to Kuwait and taken part in the uh, you know, battle against Mubarak. Of course, it didn't happen. Um, so there's that um, aspect of... Um, Yassim, which uh, again provides a fascinating part of um, Gatta's history, which you don't often uh, read about. Um, then in the early uh, 20th century, Yassim retires to the desert. And I have to say, retiring to, a to the desert was one of his tactics when he got fed up with the Ottomans. He would just disappear into the desert for months on end. Uh, leaving the Ottomans to sort of p carry the can, if you like. Uh, but eventually, um, Jassim took on a more permanent retirement in the desert, and his brother Ahmed, as I've said before, ruled from Doha. Unfortunately, uh, Ahmed was um, assassinated, I think it was in, 18, in 1905, and um, Yassim effectively was called back into the frame and uh, had to then uh, rule again until his son Abdullah could take over. Uh, that in itself caused dynastic problems. The sons of Ahmed felt that they should succeed. There was uh, Ahmed's elder brother, Khalid Khalifa, who also felt that he should succeed. And of course, Abdullah, who eventually succeeded. Uh, Abdullah was more interested in pearls than uh, seemed to be more interested in pearls and fighting, but uh, in fact he proved to be a good uh, desert leader and um, took over from Yassim when Yassim passed away in uh, 1913. So yes, he was a remarkable man and is held in great esteem in Gatta even today. And you can see, uh, again, it's a point I'm making in my book, that uh, because I think you, you were alluding to it earlier, that... Um, a lot of these countries appear to have had little history. Uh, I don't agree with that. I think they've got a rich and varied history, which goes back a fair way. Uh, but in order to um, bolster the sense of nationhood, if you like, um, of course, these stories of uh, the past, you know, Yassim, the great hero, the founder of the nation, um, all helps with that and to... Um, uh, project a, a picture of a gatter with the past um, because it said that um, a nation without a history is no nation at all. So, you know, there is a history there and Yassim perhaps symbolises an important part of it, epitomises an important part of it. 
Much of the history of Qatar in the 18th, 19th, and early 20th century that you describe is one of tribal intrigues and the playing uh, of rivals of rivalries between external powers uh, uh, present in the region. How much of that do you see today in modern day uh, Qatar today? I don't think you could say that the tribal intrigues are necessarily apparent I mean no doubt they go on um, but they're not widely reported and um, certainly within the Althani family I mean you have to look at the events of the 1950s and 1960s to get a good account of what was going on between the various sections of the ruling family um, that there, there is, I suppose, an influence um, from outside. There are strong tribal links between certain Saudi tribes and Gata, uh, which um, have exerted a certain uh, influence on Gata um, and events in Gata in the past and in the, you know, recent, uh, quite recent past as well, which has resulted um, a couple of times in expulsions of members of tribes with um, strong affinities with Saudi tribes. So is that going on as well? I think the great tragedy of the blockade is that there's a lot of um, connections between these countries, Abu Dhabi, Saudi Arabia and Bahrain, uh, a lot of movement of people, not necessarily tribally, tribal related, but generally through families um, interlinked. Uh, which, of course, has all um, been stopped now and uh, no longer happens. But as far as the, the, the old days of um, you know tribal squabbling is concerned within Gata, uh, again, we do get hints and, and um, occasionally a glimpse at that, but nothing like it used to be in the 50s and 60s. Part of the change that seems to have happened is that the, the, uh, that more recently, probably as Qatar became much more wealthy uh, with oil and gas, that the, uh, the, the politics of, of Qatar have changed. With other words, you no longer see in that, to that degree at least, the clamoring for a reduction of absolute power of the Althani's uh, demands for fairer distribution of oil revenues and calls for political reform, part of which were obviously fueled by the popularity of Arab nationalism and Egypt's leader, Gamal Abdel Nasser. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, of course, there's this theory of the social contract in which the ruler um, provides uh, uh, stability and um, the population uh, receive generous benefits. And so in that sense, it's in the Qatari's interests to have a stable uh, government, uh, rather than, you know, particularly after the Arab Spring, um, have uh, threats to that uh, stability um, by way of, you know, changing the government structure, moving closer, more quickly towards democracy and the like. And, you know, it is said, as, as I mentioned, that um, it can be argued that, in fact, um, you know, this model of government perhaps suits that type of society the best because there's still the tribal um, links um, within government and society to keep it all bound together. Um, so, 
yes, the emphasis on political reform has uh, definitely slowed down from periods in the past when it built up quite a head of steam. And, uh, of course, now with the coronavirus and the impending World Cup, there are more pressing uh, problems, perhaps uh, also with the blockade of economic survival and also delivering the World Cup, if that is going to go ahead uh, in 2022. Uh, Clearly, the whole um, country is geared up for that. And when I went there in 2018, it was uh, quite amazing how much work was being done in building the stadiums and you know everywhere you looked there was a building site and workers trudging to and fro in buses uh, to the building sites and and, and 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 the like so yeah i think the foot has gone off the um change pedal um, somewhat uh, of course the wealth from oil and gas we used to think of oil as uh Gata as an oil rich country and it was natural gas that really made the big change, uh, massive reserves of natural gas, which then brought into play another country in the Gulf, which was Iran. And uh, potentially there is scope for conflict between Gata and Iran. And um, Gata, one of the reasons why Gata has... Uh, attracted the enmity of its neighbours is its relations with Iran and it's I suppose its desire not to upset the apple cart with Iran because of course Iran is uh, more powerful far more powerful than Gata would ever be uh, militarily and also explains why Gata has sought the protection of the United States by having a United States airbase uh, in in the country although again that could be seen as rather contradictory, bearing in mind the Iranians' view of the Americans. But so far, it seems to have worked. And of course, Iran and uh, Qatar share the world's largest gas field. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So they, they obviously have to work together to some degree and have some civility in relationships. Uh, one, of, one of the things that also sort of disappeared from the period where you had more de- political demands is labor unrest. Yeah. Now, obviously, that's part of uh, the wealth uh, accumulated by the company, by the country trickling down. It's also a function of, and you mentioned this earlier, demography, with Qataris becoming a, a small minority uh, in their own country. Mm. Um However, can you sort of relate that history of labor, if you wish, to the kafala system? And also the fact was, like we were talking in the case of the, uh, of the slavery museum in Doha, uh, the fact that perhaps under pressure because of the uh, World Cup hosting rights, Qatar really took a lead in uh, addressing uh, issues raised by trade unions, by human rights groups with regard to the kafala system. Yeah. So really it was the, I suppose, the coming of oil that um, first uh, brought labour unrest to the oil fields and also um, Colonel Nasser in Egypt, uh, Gamal Nasser, and uh, the, the Arab nationalism, which was uh, sweeping the, um, the region at the time. So you have in the mid-1950s 
uh, arrest in unrest in the oil fields, and you have um, demonstrations in the towns, and particularly Doha, uh, which was suppressed uh, with some difficulty for a time. But eventually, those problems uh, disappeared again with rising prosperity, rising affluence, uh, workers. Uh, and also the coming of the kafala system, which meant that the work was done by foreign workers who obviously were in no position to argue in the same way that uh, local tribespeople had been in the past. Um, the, kaf the kafala system, in some ways, has echoes of slavery in the sense that you have a society that's used to relying on workers uh, from abroad, from, in the case of slaves, most of them coming from Africa, and moving towards the kafala system, which again has workers coming from abroad, although obviously the circumstances are quite different from the days of slavery. But you can see there that there's a society which has been used to uh, relying on foreign workers over quite a long period of time. The Qataris... It is, Sorry. it is true to say that the Qataris have made progress with the kafala system, not necessarily to the extent that these foreign organisations would like completely. There's still concerns about um, domestic abuse of foreign workers, but um, certainly made efforts, particularly with the World Cup coming up, to reform the system, um, abolish the system of certificates whereby... Uh, no objection certificates whereby workers were required to prove that their employers did not object to them leaving the country before they could do so. So things like that are certainly a step in the right direction. You describe in the book in great detail how oil has changed life in, uh, in Qatar. Yet you also suggest in, that in some ways oil and modernity cemented the traditional tribal ways and, the and their dynamic can you elaborate a bit about that? Yes, um, clearly oil did change life. Uh, it wasn't um, a sudden change. I mean, in, in the early days, um, it happened over a period of time, obviously. It was only more recent times and suddenly things took off and skyscrapers shot up, etc., and roads appeared from nowhere. Um, but it did obviously change um, the, the society um, you know, firstly, in the oil fields, the workers came across from Doha and um, then stayed for a week and then went back again to Doha. Uh, their lives were quite hard and difficult and, again, may have contributed towards the industrial unrest of the mid-1950s. Uh, but as time went on, the oil revenues um, came in and grew and Gata became more prosperous you can see how uh, the status quo was in fact preserved. Now, you think that was con contradictory, that, that you know, the arrival of all this money would somehow change society to the extent that um, you know, the ruling structure would change as well. But of course, underneath it all is a tribal society, and that never changed. And at the top of the tribal structure is the sheikh, and again, that didn't change. And the sheikh, the sheikh, uh, of course, had more money now um, to distribute. And um, when I talk about the, the sheikh, I'm really talking about the ruler. Um, 
he had more money to distribute towards his family. And, uh, you know, this then developed into a generous social security system and, you know, uh, aspects like that, which, um, you know, made Gatter into the country it is today. And also explains, I think, why the political system is, you know, on the whole, unchanged um, since those, um, you know, tribal days, because essentially it is underneath it all a, a tribal structure, which is bolstered by the wealth that has come through oil and natural gas. In, <clears throat> sorry, in many ways, um, the 1990 invasion, uh, Iraqi invasion of Kuwait was a watershed in terms of guttery relations with Saudi Arabia as well as the Gulf states' defense and foreign policy. Can you tell us why and how that uh, manifested itself? Well, I think it was a realization that um, Saudi Arabia effectively wasn't, you know, the savior that um, Gatta perhaps in the past has thought it might be, the great protector. And um, the invasion of um, Kuwait by Saddam Hussein's forces I think exposed that, and certainly in the Qatari's mind, uh, made it clear that um, they might have to look elsewhere for their protector. And this is where the United States came into play. Of course, the United States were heavily involved in repulsing Saddam's forces from Kuwait. And as a result, uh, the Qataris uh, made an agreement with the uh, US to build an airbase at Khor al-Udaid. And this, it wasn't a straightforward relationship between the Americans and, and the Qataris. I've already mentioned the Iranians, which clearly building an airbase in Gatu was at odds with. But there were ups and downs with the Americans as well. Uh, for example, when Qatar bought Stinger missiles, uh, because the Americans had supplied Bahrain with Stinger missiles, Gatta appears to have obtained their own from somewhere. I think probably Iran or the black market. And of course, that uh, upset the Americans. So, and in more modern times, uh, American concerns about Qatar being close to terrorist organizations, radical organizations, uh, unsettling forces in the Middle East, um, things like that, which uh, has led to criticism in the United States of Gatta. Um, but overall, and also, of course, there's um, Al Jazeera and even culminating in the threat of the Americans to bomb Al Jazeera's office in Doha. Uh, so there have been these uh, difficulties in the relationship. But um, overall, at the moment, certainly, um, Qatar and American are fairly uh, strong allies together, um, despite everything that's happened. Uh, another thing that contributed to reshaping relations with Saudi Arabia was the gamble that uh, the ruler, Emir Hamad, in the early 90s took uh, in terms of investing in gas. And that's really what has also uh, enabled Qatar to carve out a path of its own. Yes, um... And the ultimate um, result of that was Gatta leaving OPEC um, because it no longer considered oil to be you know, a major, it was a major, important part of its economy, but not the only um, bringer of wealth, if you like. And so 
Hamad's development of um, the Northfield allowed that to happen. It, it's interesting because the Northfield was discovered in the 1970s under the reign of Khalifa. And um, although Khalifa was obviously aware of it, he did he was reluctant to develop the field. I think in part because he was worried about the effect that that would have on Gatta's development. It would bring great development, bring in a lot of foreign workers and again, skew the demographic balance. Uh, so that I'm sure that was going through his mind. And, and also uh, the fact that he was a child of the pearling age, if you like. He was born in the 1920s, um, grew up, when pearling was going into decline. So he remembered those times of hardship and the reliance on a single resource economy, um, which might sound attractive when it's going well. But of course, when the resource declines, then your whole economy is hit. So I think he, at the back of his mind as well, um, he, he had that, um, you know, to, to think about. So what happened in the end was Khalifa didn't develop it. And in fact, he became overcautious um, in his uh, government of the country, uh, which led to, of course, to Hamad's um, coup in 1995. There is, of course, in the longer term, natural gas um, is in plentiful supply, it's in demand. But of course, that demand will wane over time and the supplies eventually will run out. So, you know, Gata clearly has to think about diversification. And there have been efforts to diversify through the Gatter Investment Authority, uh, effectively its sovereign wealth fund, um, in order to provide a wider base for its economy rather than relying on a single commodity such as natural gas. If I can throw one last speculative question at you, which may come a little bit out of left field, but given your, your intimate knowledge of Qatar, it strikes me that the resolution of the uh, the rift in the Gulf with Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates, is going to have to involve a face-saving solution for all. What would be a face-saving solution for Qatar? I think the World Cup provides a good opportunity. Uh, if you look at their economies, they're all suffering at the moment, and the World Cup provides an opportunity to... Uh, for everyone to participate, um, certainly in the economic benefits of um, having the World Cup. And if they could unite under that, um, it would be, you know, certainly a good way to uh, end past differences and be face-saving in the process. It would obviously entail a bit of give and take on both sides, but then such things uh, usually do. Uh, there is... Of course, underneath this all, very um, strong feelings. Uh, there's no indication that Bahrain really wants to um, compromise still. And I think history, in part, accounts for that. They have very strong feelings about Gata. And even as recently as 2018, the king of Bahrain was claiming that all of Gata was was theirs. Um, whether that you know that's just talk and posturing, who knows? But um, certainly, I think there's quite strong feelings on their side. And in the UAE under Mohammed bin Zayed, um, again, very strong feelings about what Qatar has done um, by associating it, itself uh, with the Muslim Brotherhood. 
Uh, it may be that the initiative will come from Saudi Arabia uh, and whether the Qataris accept that. But at the end of the day, the Qataris have survived and, um, you know, they perhaps aren't as desperate to compromise as um, you might have thought. And, you know, who knows? But I think certainly with the World Cup on the horizon, I think that would provide a great opportunity to uh, brush over past differences and, um, you know, basically share the World Cup, not not the games necessarily, but the accommodation and stuff like that, and uh, move on, uh, you know, move on together because at the end of the day uh, they're very similar in in their governments and tribal societies and um, they really have a great affinity with each other despite these um, arguments and of course there are enemies um, ranged against them who would um, quite happily see them be divided uh, so it is in their interest to come together and you know I think uh, overall everyone hopes that eventually they will Quentin, we could go on easily for another hour, but unfortunately we're ending or nearing the end of this interview. Before I let you go, uh, what's uh, your next project? Where do you go from here? I'm taking a bit of a break from writing at the moment. I'm still writing articles, um, some of them on the history of oil, and um, I'll just see where it goes. I'm still interested in Gulf history, uh, perhaps uh, another history of one of the Gulf countries, perhaps even Saudi Arabia. Uh, but at the moment, I'm sort of sitting back and um, taking stock, if you like. I've written in the past 10 years up to, I think it's nine books on, on the region. And, um, you know, that's quite a pace. So I'm quite happy to um, take a back seat for a time and um, let things settle. And perhaps, you know, as I say, write, write articles and uh, see what uh, see what comes up. But, um, you know, I've enjoyed it so far, but it seems the right time to take a break. Quentin, those seem like good ideas. Thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Take care and all the best. Thank you, James, for having me. Thank you.